I want to remind you we're in the book of James. So if uh, you brought a Bible with you, now's the time to open the book of James back in the New Testament. After the book of Hebrews, you find James. Go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, see me after the service and you will go home with a Bible. We want you to have one. It will be life-changing for you. So I want you to go uh, to the book of James, open the Word of God. That's what we do every Sunday because in it we find the truth. By contrast to that, let me make a statement. And it's going to sound to you a little bit like uh, like a no-duh kind of statement, but bear with me. Here's my statement. Satan is a liar. Okay, that wasn't nearly enough amen, so let me, let's try this again. Satan is a liar, right? Okay, so you know that, right? This is not new. If you've been around church, if you've read your Bible, if you know much about how God works and how the world works, you already know from experience that Satan is a liar. But let me tell you something about that. He is really good at it. Really good at it. He was able to convince a third of the angels to align with him and rebel against God thinking they would rule heaven. He was able to convince Adam and Eve that the paradise of Eden and their perfect relationship with God was actually a cage that they needed to get out of as quickly as possible. And he's been convincing people of that same thing ever since. He's really good at lying. And one of his most common lies that we hear in our society today that people just nod their heads and take, it goes something like this. All roads lead to heaven as long as you're sincere. All roads lead to heaven as long as you're sincere. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. This statement comes in various packages, but the whole idea of it is that it's really your sincerity that determines your eternity. And this is a lie that he's been telling for a long time. But... um, It's so amazing to me because we don't believe that kind of logic in any other area of life, but when it comes to the most important thing, our eternal lives, people swallow that all the time. Let's try to illustrate. So imagine that uh, you invite me to come to your house next week after after church for lunch, which is a fabulous idea, by the way, okay? (laughs) You, you inv- but I've never been to your house. I don't know where you live, but that's okay because it's the 21st century, so you just text me the address, right? I don't need anything else. You give me the address because we all carry a little computer in our pockets and purses now that will get us where we need to go, right? But I decide that I'm feeling particularly spiritual, and rather than trust the GPS, I'm going to just find my way there. So I decide that as we go out of the church parking lot, we come to the end of the driveway there, I sit there for a moment and I think, wow, right or left? You know, it just feels like right. So I go right. And then I come to Buena Vista and and there's a red light and that's good because it gives me some time. And I'm thinking, which way do I go? I could go left, right, I could go forward, I could make a U-turn, go backward. Which way do I go? Man, I just, I just feel led to go left. 
So I go left and I come to the uh, 210 freeway. And now I'm there and there's a light and I'm trying to figure out which way to go. Do I get on the freeway? Do I keep going straight? I don't want to keep going straight because I'll be stuck at the train track for 45 minutes. So I don't do that. But beyond that, I, I go, you know, maybe I'll just pray about it and the Lord will lead me. And, and I keep doing this at every single intersection that I come to until, uh, until I feel that I'm at the right place. And when I feel like I'm at the right place, I just go up and knock on the door. What are the odds that I'm at your house? Zero, right? But somehow, while we would never do that in our driving, we do that with our eternal life at stake. I'm just going to feel my way. Whatever feels right to me, I'm just going to decide based on that. Okay, if you don't like that illustration, don't worry. I'll give you another one. I'm a professional. Here we go. Let's say that you decide you want to bake some chocolate chip cookies. Also a fabulous idea, by the way. And so you don't know how to do it, so you do what I did, and you go online, and you type in chocolate chip cookie recipes, and you find the recipe for Nestle Toll House chocolate chip cookies, which is what I did, and here's what it said. Two and a quarter cups all-purpose flour, one teaspoon baking soda, one teaspoon salt. One cup of butter softened, three quarters cup granulated sugar, three quarters cup packed brown sugar, one teaspoon vanilla extract, two large eggs, two cups Nestle Toll House semi-sweet chocolate morsels, and one cup chopped nuts. That's it. That's all your ingredients. So you get your ingredients laid out on the counter and you realize, I don't have any sugar. And as you look around the kitchen, you notice the salt. And you say to yourself, it looks just like sugar. This is going to work. And so you take the salt and you go three quarters cup salt. Anybody want to eat those cookies? No. <laughs> no right? You, you, you felt your way to it. You kind of decided on your own recipe. But what you ended up with was not what you set out to find. Now, I'm going to give you one more example. Let's say you've gone to the grocery store, you've got groceries in the back of the car, and you run out of gas on the way home. And you're stuck. You're on empty. You're completely out of gas. Car won't start. You think, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then you think, I've got two gallons of milk in the back seat. I've got a funnel in the trunk. How about I just pour the milk into the gas tank? That'll give me two gallons. That's at least 40 miles, right? I should be fine. When you turn the key, do you expect your car to start? No, why? Because cars don't run on milk. They run on gas. You say, well, that's a very narrow-minded point of view. Yeah, it is. It also happens to be the truth. See, somehow people believe the lie that the key to eternal life is to be sincere in what you believe, no matter what it is that you happen to believe. Then here's the thing. It doesn't matter how sincere you are if you are sincerely wrong. Jesus said this, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the truth. Now, that's a very narrow-minded statement. It, it takes out all these other religious systems, takes out all kinds of other people's points of views and preferences. It, it just, uh, 
it just marginalizes literally billions of people on earth today who would say, but I'm planning on going another way to eternal life. It's extremely narrow-minded. In fact, a lot of people call it bigotry. Some people call it hate speech. And yet Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father through me. And here's the thing, it happens to be true. And Jesus backed it up by raising himself from the dead. When it comes to religion, before it is a matter of sincerity, it's a matter of truth. If we don't get the truth right, it doesn't matter how sincere we are. Well, I told you before, when we get into the book of James, James does not mind offending you with the truth. He doesn't. He's going to keep doing it, and today is no different. So we're going to be in James chapter 1, and we're going to pick it up at the end of chapter 1, and look at verses 26 and 27 of James chapter 1. Here's what James writes. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart... This man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Pretty straightforward, pretty direct, pretty narrow-minded, but it's pretty straightforward. James basically says, if you want to impress God with your religion, here's what it looks like. Watch your mouth care for the hurting, and live a pure life. That's what he says. Now, some of you, especially if you know your Bible pretty well, may be sitting here now going, this doesn't sound right to me. There's something about the way James is saying this. I don't, this sounds to me like works righteousness. James is saying, look, there's, there's, there's faulty religion and there's pure religion. And, and if you want pure religion then there's some things you have to do, like control your tongue. If you want pure religion, there's some things you have to do, like you're gonna have to visit orphans and widows. If you want pure religion, there's some things you have to not do. You have to keep yourself unstained by the world, so all these things that the world thinks are great, you need to stay away from those things. I mean, there's a lot of things, according to James, you gotta do if you want your religion to be impressive to God. And some of you are thinking, that doesn't sound biblical, that sounds like works righteousness. Well, hang in there. We'll start to understand this better as we go on. But for now, don't forget the context, right? Everything in Scripture is about context. And last week, Pastor Byron was preaching on the verses just above this, right? And he helped us to see that it's not enough to just know about God. It's not enough to just hear God's word, but that we actually have to be doers of the word. And he goes even further and says, if you hear the word and don't do the word, you are deluding yourself if you think you're living a life that's pleasing to God. So you have to do what the word says. That's our context, right? Now, that is not how you earn favor with God. There's no way to earn favor with God. Every one of us is a sinner. We're going to always fall short of the standard of God's perfection. There's no way for us to earn favor uh, with God. Even at our best, we fall short. 
But remember who James is writing to. He's writing to Christians. He made that clear at the beginning of the letter. He makes it clear multiple times throughout. He's writing to people who already have salvation. He's writing to people who are already in a relationship with God. He's not talking about, here's how you get from being covered in sin to being covered in in God's love. He's saying, no, those of you who have already come out of sin and out of darkness and into light, this is what it looks like to live in the light. He's not talking about how to earn your salvation. It's so important for us because especially as we read James, you're gonna find this again and again and again. James is gonna say, hey, stop it with all the platitudes and just do the right thing. He says it again and again. Do this, don't do that. Stop doing this, start doing this. It's all to James about what we do. And if you've been a Christian for very long, you go, no, that doesn't sound like grace. Isn't salvation about grace? It's not about what we do. So let's get this straight, because there are some people who think that James is at odds with everything that Paul wrote about the nature of salvation. So let's see what Paul had to say. Go back to the book of Ephesians, okay? And, you know, that's maybe 20 pages to the left from James. Go to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And let's look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. He says, for grace, underline that word, you have been saved, underline that word, through faith, underline that word, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift, underline that word, of God. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that, the faith, is not of yourself. You didn't find the faith within yourself. The faith was a gift from God. So in other words, he's saying, there is no way you're going to run up to God and tell him about how great you are, and he's gonna go, wow, you're qualified. Come on into heaven. It doesn't matter how good your works are, and it takes faith. It's an act of grace. And you say, okay, I'm gonna muster up enough faith. He goes, no, even the faith is a gift from God. You can't earn your way into God's good graces. It has to happen as a gift. It has to come by grace. Verse nine, not as a result of works. That's about as clear as it could be. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I come into a saving relationship with God. That is not what James is talking about. He's talking to people who have already come into that saving relationship. Okay? Because look what Paul says next in verse 10. For we are his, God's, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, what does it say? good works. We were created in Christ. We were born again. We were given this faith to believe for good works, saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God expects us to do these good works. Is it the good works that get you your salvation? No, but because of your salvation, you can now walk in these good works. God has freed you up to do that. So we're saved by grace unto good works. James is not disagreeing with Paul. He's expanding on what Paul said about the nature of salvation. He's not talking here about how to become saved. He's talking about what happens in your life once you are saved. Salvation, again, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But true saving faith, the reformer said, is never alone. 
We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but true saving faith is never alone. It always has a transforming power. It always changes our lives. It always makes a difference so that you cannot be dead unto self, alive unto Christ, born again, and still be the same person. You are going to be transformed by the power of God in your life. That's the nature of being a Christian. If the grace of Jesus is strong enough to save you, it is strong enough to change you. That's what James is saying. So James is talking to us as Christians about what that changed life looks like. And it seems pretty simple. Apparently, there are three things you have to do to impress God with your religion. You got to watch your mouth, you got to visit orphans and widows, and you got to keep yourself unstained by the world. We'll get to that. But first, let's think about the kind of religion that God can't stand. Because he's doing a contrast here of, of worthless religion, he calls it, and pure and undefiled religion on the other side. So let's make an understanding first of what this worthless religion is all about. Because there are a lot of religious people out there, even those who, uh, who go by the, the title Christian. I mean, like really good people, people who like put a fish decal on their car and everything, like really godly people. <laughs> right? There are people like that who, who are in church every time the doors are open, who have a great big thick King James Bible that they carry with them everywhere they go, who, who you know, leave tracks instead of tips for waitresses. People like that, really good people. People who claim Christ and the scripture says God despises their religion, you remember what uh, the book of Revelation tells us about the church at Laodicea? I don't know if you've read the book of Revelation much, but turn to the end of your Bible and find Revelation chapter 3. In, in the very beginning there of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, um, Jesus, the risen, exalted, glorified Christ, is addressing several churches, seven of them, that are in the, that are in the region there at the time that John is writing this. And uh, he gives instructions to each of these churches. And we're going to look at the ones that he gives to the church at a place called Laodicea. That's in chapter 3, verse 14. And some of this, even if you've never read Revelation, you probably heard this before, so just follow along. It says, To the angel of the church at, in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed." And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Okay, this is the church at Laodicea. 
Just get a picture in your mind. It was a little different back then, but get a picture in your mind of what a local church is. Grace Fellowship is a local church, right? So picture this, the church at Laodicea. There's a sign out front, says First Church of Laodicea. Has the service times and the website on the sign, right? And there's a building with a steeple and there's a bunch of programs and there's stuff on Wednesday nights, and there's youth group on Thursdays, and there's men's Bible study and women's Bible study. They take communion there. They do baptisms. All of the things you expect to happen in a local church, right? That's the church at Laodicea. They bear every mark of being real Christians, but they're not real Christians. And you know how we know? Because their lives are unchanged. Jesus calls them lukewarm And he says, because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold. Because you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Literally, the Greek word, I will vomit you, he says. So so let me me just um, put it in our vernacular today. Here's what Jesus is saying. When I look at this church, he says, this so-called church made up of people with fish on their cars and people who tell me how to vote the right way if you're really a Christian and all that stuff, And I see all of that, but I see their hearts, and I know that their hearts are far from me and their lives are unchanged. They make me sick. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying this about this so-called church in Laodicea. Hey, you guys, you make me sick. Now, Now, pay attention. In this passage, where is Jesus in relation to this church while he's talking? He's outside How do we know? He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And literally the Greek says, I'm standing at the door and I keep on knocking. I've been here a long time and I just keep knocking and I'm knocking and I'm knocking and I'm hoping somebody will open the door. Because if you open the door to me, church at Laodicea, I will come into you and have fellowship with you. But if you don't, I won't, and I will spit you out of my mouth. So all of the signs of Christianity, and yet no reality to it. See, there's a type of religion that doesn't impress God at all, because Christ has no part in it. Jesus describes this for us. Go back to uh, Matthew chapter 25. First book of your New Testament is the book of Matthew. Uh, Toward the end of Matthew, you find chapter 25. And in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, Jesus gives this famous uh, story that he tells. And he says, the day's coming when I am going to return. And when I return, there's going to be a judgment. Here's what he says. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Sorry, goats. He'll put the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is an amazing story that Jesus tells. Jesus is not saying that all these works that they either did or didn't do earned them their place in heaven or hell. He is saying that if you actually have been saved by grace, it will change your life and it will lead you to become the kind of person who does these things. And that changed life is the mark of a gracious, transforming work of Jesus. So don't think James is saying something radical here. Don't think he's coming up with some new teaching that we've never heard before. The mark of a genuine Christian is how his life is being changed by the presence of God. An unchanged life is a sign of worthless religion. And I want you to notice something in Jesus' story. He separates them. There's sheep on one side and goats on the other. Sheep are going to heaven. Goats are going to hell. It's pretty simple, right? You know what's interesting? Both groups call him Lord. And he says it's not about those who say, Lord, Lord. It's about those who do the will of my Father. Salvation changes us. An unchanged life is a sign of what James calls worthless religion. So James gives us an example of worthless religion. Let's get back to James 1. He gives us an example of worthless religion in verse 26. And that is an example of a pious life with a poisonous tongue. A pious life with a poisonous tongue. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Guys, James is going to talk to us again and again and again about what comes out of our mouths. It's a huge deal to God. And James just beats it and beats it and beats it. He's saying that a true follower of Christ will work to get control of his tongue. Now, those of you, maybe any of you grew up around horses or anything, what, what's a bridle? Anybody know what a bridle is? He says you gotta bridle your tongue. What does that mean? Come on, this is audience participation. Wake up the person next to you, okay? Okay, control. Yeah, with, with a horse, I, I was uh, blessed or cursed or something to grow up 
around horses. My sister's a horse trainer and she's 14 years older than me. So from the time I was a little kid, she was taking us every day to the stables. My brother and me, we grew up on horseback. We did every job there is to do around a a stable. And we got to know horses from top to bottom and front to back. And one of the things that we often had to do by the time we were five or six, because my sister, I hope she's listening to this, my sister's the meanest person in the world, okay? (laughs) And when we were little kids, man, she actually made us work, which was, you know, child labor laws. I tried to hire a lawyer. It didn't work. But we had to go to the stables, and she would send us in to get the tack in the tack room, right? And the tack is these bridles among other things, and you would go get the bridle, and the bridle is these leather strips that are made up into kind of a hat that goes around the horse's face, and there are these two uh, round metal um, holes on the side that uh, on the one side hook the, the uh, bit that goes in the horse's mouth, right, and the other side of those uh, metal rings is uh, the reins that the rider holds. And that's the only way you can control a horse. I don't know if you ever noticed this about horses, but they're big and strong. And when I was a little kid, I mean, there are some horses that still outweigh me to this day, right? But I'm talking about being five, six years old and on the back of a full-size horse and trying to control that thing. And I've had this happen to me where something spooks that horse and that horse takes off and you're a 50-pound kid on the back of a 1,500-pound horse and you're trying to control this thing. You know what? If you know what you're doing, you can make that horse do whatever you want him to do because of the bridle. The bridle puts the horse under the control of the rider. When James tells us that we have to bridle our tongues, what he's saying is your speech needs to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Don't tell me, he says, about your religious transformation if the stuff that comes out of your mouth is poisonous. And he's saying that an out-of-control tongue is a common sign that a person may be religious, but they're not actually transformed by the Spirit of God. Too many people who claim to be followers of Jesus show their hypocrisy by what comes out of their mouths. And by the way, in today's society, if James was writing this letter to our modern church, he wouldn't just talk to us about what comes out of our mouths. He would talk to us about what comes out of our fingertips and what comes out of our thumbs. Because I don't know if you've thought about this much, but just about every one of us in this room is a published author, <laughs> right? You, you get some harebrained idea, you just tweet it out. It's just in the Twitter sphere forever now, right? And, 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 and that's how it works now. Everything's recorded. This, this sermon right now is going out live. People are sitting at home, you know, watching this all around the world, and It's going out live, and then it's going to go on this beautiful place called YouTube where it will be there forever, and people can go and listen to this sermon. So I used to be able to just say stupid stuff up here and get away with it, right? And if anybody said, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe what Doug said, I would go, I never said that. (laughs) But now it's like, there it is. The whole world is watching. That's how it is for all of us. You get mad at somebody and you decide to tweet out something that is mean and unkind about that person, it's out there. 
You, you get all excited about one candidate and therefore you hate the other candidate and you say something mean, spiteful, and hateful about the people who support that candidate, guess what? It's out there. And, and James would warn us to not just watch what we say with our lips and tongue, but he would warn us to watch what we say with our thumbs and fingers because we are doing damage by not being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger in the way that we use social media. Too often, even those who say they're followers of Jesus, the words that come out of us are filled with venom. And by the way, sometimes the things we say might even be right. Standing up for God, entering in the debate about important things that matter to God. But let me just tell you something. Being right does not make it okay to be a jerk. You're not writing. Write that down. <laughs> Being right, like I'm trying not to make like eye contact with every person, right? <laughs> Being right does not give you the privilege to be a jerk. God says the mark of his people is our what? Love. Love. There's a whole bunch of people. If you ask them, they're outside the church. They don't know the Lord. And you ask them, what do you think of Christians? A lot of them will say, every Christian I know is a jerk. Now, that may be an unfair statement, but it's a common statement. We need to be careful. The great commandment is to love. Ephesians 4 tells us, speak the truth in love. Listen to how Paul describes the wicked in Romans 3. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. Let me just read this to you real quick. Romans chapter 3, Paul is actually quoting the Psalms here. So this appears in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Paul is talking about wicked people, okay? There's wicked people, he says. Now, what is the sign of these wicked people? Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Paul is so convinced that this is a big deal that he says the primary sign of wickedness is when filth is coming out of our mouths. And I'm not just talking about profane language. I don't know what's happened in my lifetime with profanity, but I don't think anything counts as profanity anymore. Like every bad word that I used to get my mouth washed out with soap for is just used as a verb, an adjective, a noun, you know, it's just five times in every sentence and, and nobody blushes and nobody shrugs and it doesn't bother anybody and we're just used to it. And he's talking about that, but he's not just talking about that. He's talking about meanness and unkindness and harshness and rudeness, the stuff that comes out of our mouths. So what is James saying? He's saying the same thing Jesus said. He's saying the same thing Paul said. He's saying the same thing the psalmist said. If Jesus is changing your life, one of the signs is that your mouth begins to get cleaned up. 
There's no such thing as a true saving faith in Jesus that leaves us unchanged. Now, that change is a process, let me be clear. And we're not all moving at the same pace in that process. I'm always amazed at how God moves so slowly in my maturity where I see others maturing so fast. And, and we all mature at different rates and there are some things you're convicted of early in your Christian life and you get a handle on and others that you don't even think about until later. We're all moving at different paces. This is not a license to judge one another, but he is telling us to look at ourselves. If, if, if there's not change in your life, if you don't see this process going on, then you should question whether you have a real relationship with Jesus. It's easy to deceive ourselves. But Jesus said, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Your words reveal who you really are on the inside. So James warns us about this worthless false religion. And he also tells us what real Christ-honoring faith looks like on the outside. And he could give all kinds of examples, but he boils it down to two. Let's go back to James 1 and look at verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Visit orphans and widows. What an interesting thing for him to say. Here's the sign of real religion. Visit orphans and widows. Let me put it another way. Live out a life of compassion. Let me put it another way. Help the hurting. When you see a need, try to meet it. When you see somebody who's hurting, get involved. Listen, I don't know if every Christian I've ever met realizes this, but God has a very, very soft spot in his heart for people who are hurting, for the marginalized, for the downtrodden, downtrodden, for the poor, for the weak, for the sick, for the infirm, for those who have been pushed out. And if you don't believe me, go back and read the Gospels and watch what Jesus does. He's always reaching out to a leper. He's always healing a blind man. He's always raising the dead. He's always caring for widows. He's always reaching out to the deaf and giving them hearing. He's giving sight to the blind. He's he's giving speech to the dumb. He's giving mobility to the lame. Just wherever he goes. And he's usually on his way to meet with somebody really important. And then all of a sudden, here's this crippled guy by the side of the road, and everybody with him wants to keep going because we're going to be late. And Jesus stops and goes and ministers to this person, treats him with dignity and kindness and respect, and does what he can to meet his need. We see Jesus doing it over and over again. And if that's not enough example for you, and it should be, just go back and read any of the Old Testament prophets and see what God has to say about what he thinks of when we don't care for the poor, when we don't care for the needy, when we don't care for the weak, when we marginalize people and push them aside. Too many conservative Christians have a reputation for not caring about the poor and the weak and the hurting and the underprivileged, but that's not Jesus. And if Jesus is ruling in your heart, it won't be you either. It's not enough to feel badly for people, James says. You need to do something. When you have it within your means to help, you should help. Let me put it this way. Lonely people need a visit. I wonder what crosses our minds when we 
Every week, many of us in this church receive a weekly uh, email about prayer needs from the cards that are in your bulletin and people fill out on Sundays. People are hurting, people are hospitalized, people lost a loved one, there's a lot going on, people are hurting. And, and hopefully you read that and you stop and you spend time praying for those people on a regular basis. Does it ever occur to you that when somebody is giving an update about their hospital stay, they could really use a visit? I went a few weeks ago to visit one of our church members who had been hospitalized for a while, and, and it just blessed my heart. I walked in, and, and this happened to me twice. When I went to visit this guy, I walked in, and there was another church member from our church there visiting him already. Guys, yay, good job. That's what we're supposed to do right? Lonely people need visits. And that's not just hospitalized people. That's older people. That's people who are shut in there. It's a lot of people who just need a visit. Hungry people need some food. One of our grace groups just did this thing where they made up care packages for homeless people that they're carrying in their cars with them wherever they go so that when they, when they encounter somebody and, and they see an opportunity, they actually have it right there in their car to go, hey, look, this is for you. It's got food in it. It's got a jacket in it. It's got things that you need. It's just a simple thing to do, especially for those of us who can afford to buy those things, right? People in need should have those needs met by the people of God. Fatherless kids need a father figure. I'm so sick of hearing people talk about what's wrong in the inner city and what's wrong in the ghetto and all of that kind of stuff and all the crime and all the gangs and all that kind of stuff. And everybody knows, everybody knows that the primary issue that is going on, or a primary issue, I should say, that is going on in those crime-ridden communities is that there is a complete absence of fathers. So those of us who are fathers... Don't you think maybe some of us could be big brothers to some of those guys? Don't you think some of us could get involved in actually helping people who are in those kinds of situations? And you know what else? There are kids who don't have families at all through abuse, through the death of their parents or whatever. They're in the system. You know how desperately there are children praying every night, Lord, please give me a good foster family. Lord, please give me a family who will adopt me. Christians should be leading the way in adoptions. It should be normal. It should be so hard to find a Christian church where there's no family that has adopted children. It's not, I'm not saying every Christian should be adopting, but my goodness, who should be leading the way and meeting these kinds of needs if not the church of Jesus Christ? You and I can do something about the practical needs of people, and when we do, we're living out our faith. We're shining the light of Jesus into dark places. So he says, visit orphans and widows. What he means is, meet needs. When you see hurting people, help them. And one last thing James says, and I'll wrap it up. He talks about pure and undefiled religion. He says, keep yourself unstained by the world. Listen, if you're a Christian, you should look different than this world. Now, let me clarify I didn't say you should be weird, okay? I, I know some Christians who seem to interpret this, I'm not of this world kind of thing, as I need to be weird. I should dress weird. I should have a ridiculous haircut. I should walk around with a sign. You know, I should, I should shout through a megaphone. I should just be weird. Guess what? People don't like weird people. People stay away from weird people. Jesus is not telling us to be weird. He's telling us to shine like Jesus. Who in the New Testament is more attractive than Jesus? 
He never sins. He, he never does anything wrong. He doesn't have to become like his culture. But where do you see him all the time? At a party? Where do you see him all the time? Hanging out with prostitutes, tax collectors, and thieves? He had a reputation in spite of his perfect behavior because of the people that he spent time with. Somehow he figured out how to be in the world and not of the world. And the world didn't rub off on him. Weirdness is not what James is talking about. But the Bible says you are the light of the world, church. It's a dark place, this world. You know that. Hatred, lust, racism, greed, oppression. This is the world we live in. list goes on and on. But we're supposed to be the light that pierces that darkness. That means that people should see Jesus in us. Where there is hatred, let us not be stained by it, but let us be filled with love and then stand as a contrast to the hatred. Where there's lust, let us not be stained by it. Let us be an example of purity. Where there's racism, let us not be stained by it. Let us be an example of the heart of God for all people who are made in his image, whether they look like you or not. Where there's greed, let us, the people of God, not be stained by it. Let us be an example of generosity so that when people think of Christians, they think of those who give. Where there's oppression, let us not be stained by it, but let us lead the way in social justice. Guys, it is so easy, especially if you have, um, boy, I'm going to get in some trouble here. Okay, even if you have uh, conservative political views, it is so easy to just write off social justice and go, I don't really care about all that. That's not Jesus. Social justice, caring for the poor, taking care of the needy, feeding the hungry, welcoming the stranger, taking care of refugees. That's not a political question. That's a Jesus question. We're supposed to be that to people. And when, does, when did the church get the idea that, that you know, our, the political parties will divide us and decide what we do and don't do? And there are some on some political parties that will do these kinds of Jesus things. And then there are other political parties that will do these kinds of Jesus things. Guys, it's an it's a election year. You're not going to hear me tell you who to vote for. I am going to tell you this. Act like a Christian. That's all God's asking of us. We should act like a Christian, and social justice is at the heart of God. We are the children of God. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And if Jesus truly reigns in our hearts, our lives will make that abundantly clear. Just a, just a few minutes ago, we took the Lord's Supper together. It's this unbelievable bond that we have as Christians we share in this intimate worship with God, and then it crosses over the generations. It crosses racial boundaries, and it crosses gender, and it crosses economic boundaries, and that same body and that same blood is what every one of us needs to know Jesus. We're, we're one with God, Christians, because of the death and resurrection of Christ. If that's true on the inside of me, May God help us to show it on the outside by a life that is being transformed by the living Christ in us. 
That is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. Let's bow our heads together. God, we just want to thank you for your word, for opening it to us, and for loving us enough to challenge us, to not leave us where we are, comfortable in our lukewarmness, but calling us to heat up. Father, I pray that each and every one of us would be so filled with your spirit that the darkness would be pierced by the light of Christ every time we step into a room. I pray, God, that you would give us the love for people that you so clearly have. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to get past our preconceived ideas, our political barriers, our, are the things that separate us, and instead to live for the glory of Jesus Christ above all else, to actually do it. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.